previously on Flowers for Zoe, Stories for Dennis. But it's also been this far the best year because I have done all of these things, whether they've been hardships or laughter or being happy. I've done it all sober this year. And now coming up on the show. I never decided that I'm never going to have a drink or never would have cannabis. I'm just getting better today, right? But then I got to a point that I'm like, you know what? You've never been this happy. You've never been this confident, really confident of yourself, just accepting who you are. And that was the first time that I'm like, you know what? I believe deep down that I don't need that drug. I feel like I did it. On today's podcast, we have our first guest. Sarush is currently in recovery after 10 years of polysubstance use, including fentanyl. Today, he is a peer support worker and a smart recovery group facilitator. As part of his passion for helping others, today he's going to tell his story of loss, hitting bottom, loneliness, isolation, and almost dying. He also shares what it took to reduce harm and begin his recovery journey. Sit back, get comfortable, and hear how Sarush survived and then flourished after his battle with opioids. If you find anything on today's episode activating, please reach out and talk to somebody. If you find the discussion helpful, please share the link with others. Welcome everybody. On today's podcast, we have our first guest. Sarosh. We welcome you. We want to hear from you. We want to hear about your story and your ideas and your thoughts. So welcome. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much. And thank you uh, for having me on this podcast. I've listened to all your podcasts, some of them twice. And I feel like I kind of know everybody a little bit. And now that you know about all of us from the podcast... Let's hear your story, where you started and what happened and how you got to where you are now. Sure, yeah. I really started in high school. I moved to Canada when I was in grade 11. Drinking and cannabis was around. It became something that I just enjoyed a lot. And now I realize it was coping with different things, you know, like social anxiety and trying to mask a lot of insecurities and all that. So I started really drink a lot until I was in my 20s. That's when I started using cannabis on a daily basis. And I wanted to go to university. So I was then taking, you know, stimulants to study. I would go back to Iran sometimes to visit. And I would go back there and I couldn't get a hold of cannabis over there. Opioids and pills are around. Opium is really big, but I'm like, well, I can replace this with cannabis. I don't, you know, I feel as good as doing what it's supposed to do. And I brought a lot of pills back with me. Eventually, I moved towards opioids. I realized it just does something for me that, like, I was trying to get it from those stimulants. And it was discreet, and I never thought it was a problem. Thinking I graduated from high school in 2005, probably around 2008, 9, 
I was taking those pills over 10 years. Your tolerance grows and you need more to get the same effect. I had to take now 10 of them to get the same effect. So I was thinking, oh, this is too much. You know, it's hard on me and my liver and my stomach and it's not even doing much. And by the time I finished my bachelor's degree, I was smoking opium daily. I would do it and I would go to school, come back and I would do it and I go to work. I would go back to Iran and I do more. So my tolerance would grow. And that, that was something I couldn't do all the time. So then I was buying prescriptions that was available here. And just a mixture of these opioids became a part of my life. And people around me, my circle of friends, didn't think that I was doing it to a degree I was. I started to isolate. I got into relationships that they could accept what I was doing and isolating my own place and doing it more and more eventually. I was thinking about continuing education to go even higher and stuff, but I just couldn't do it. I couldn't hold a job anymore. Now I realized uh, I was getting fired because of things that they could notice. Money became an issue. I couldn't afford to pay for it all the time. Uh, I didn't have the support of my family that much. It just got to more cheaper stuff to get the same effect. And the last two years before I kind of go into recovery, it just got really bad. Um, I was using opium and I was smoking prescription pills on top of it, which now I know they were fentanyl. Long story short, when I was back in Iran, I lost a friend to an overdose that actually lived with me here and we started on this together. And he was always further in this journey. He gave me my first pill when, you know, I went to a breakup and I should take this pill, you know, uh, or when I was in Iran. So, and he always had to stop and always trusted him, but he just went downhill and, uh, you know, he overdosed. And that didn't even make me to stop. I kind of lost it after that. I went downhill to smoking crystal meth and just uh, anything I could get my hands on. I came back to Canada and that's when, um, you know, I would never go like to street and buy all this kind of dealer and, you know, like got the good stuff. But when I came back to Canada, I had no money and I couldn't find the stuff I used to, you know, like opium and the pills, like they were shut down and it was harder to get here. So I went to the streets on the east side and um, got my first batch of street fentanyl. And I did that. And all this time, I'm kind of know I'm going downwards, but I'm, in the back of my head, I'm trying to get better. Like, you know, if I can like talk about all the periods I tried to stop and cut down and go on trips so I cannot use many times. But when I had that fentanyl, I'm like, okay, this is it. Because I was getting kind of sick of it. You know, my tolerance was so high and I couldn't just address that. And everybody was like, like I was doing it all the time. And when I got, uh, when I used them, I'm like, wow, like this is something I can do for a while and I'm going to be medicated, let's say, with it. This is really strong. And 
but I also knew the first time I did it that this will kill me. Just how strong, just the way I knew opioids and how the effects and the strength that this had and the destruction I see like when I did it, I knew I either have to only do this for a while. Like that was the first time I knew I had to go to treatment for sure in my head. It was a couple of years that other people could see it and would tell me, but that was the time that I knew that I would end up like my friend. But still, I did that for almost a year. And I went to treatment in uh, 2018, in December. I was looking for treatment now for a couple of months. By the time I was there, I started to live back at home with my parents then for like six months or so. You know, that's when I was kind of reducing harms by that point. Um, I'm looking for treatment. I went to the first one that was on my list. I've been clean and sober for three and a half years. Congratulations, three and a half years. Yeah, seriously, that's that's so amazing. Your story is heartbreaking. It really is. Yeah. I mean, it's a survivor story, and it's a, it's a lonely story. I think addiction yeah. is very, very lonely. It is. You know, it's... Um, there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of negative feelings with it. And then when you get people who just put that hand out and are like, okay, you know, I'm going to help you, you kind of start looking at things differently, you know, and I don't know how your support system really was. I know you mentioned your your parents there for a little while, but with no support system, like it's lonely. It's hard. It's like you have nobody on your team, nobody on your side, nobody understands it was very lonely, especially if you want to maintain your image and portray that you're the person everybody thinks in a way and you're doing great. As I said, I went you know, to university, I got graduated, I had a really good job. And, but you can't talk to anyone, you know, especially like a couple of times I would go to my you know, family doctor, let's see how they can support you, right? They'd be like, okay, you know, maybe you should take this pill. And that, like, it wasn't really anything that I could I have any hope for. And then I'm like, how am I going to, like, talk to anyone about this? But it was really hard, you know? You just don't know what you look for. And as I said, I went to doctors many times. and They couldn't even, like, tell anything was wrong. I would do blood tests and things were normal. I'm like, how is this possible? Like, I'm taking all these pills every day. I never had any kind of counseling or therapy until I was in treatment, like nothing. Like I never talked to anyone about my feelings. Even in treatment, I just did not open up to anyone. And any, no one in my family did. Uh, you know, no one in my culture did. You know, if you got help in therapy, there was something really wrong with you. And, you know, I would see my friends going to treatment, the one that I lost. He went to treatment. Two of my friends that I lost to overdose, both of them grew up together in Vancouver. Both of them went to SFU. One of them wanting to go to medical school. So we always like, oh, this is the guy you should ask for. He knew about all the medicines. He knew about, you know, everything in the body and we would trust them. And both these people went to treatment. And right away they end up 
overdose and like that didn't work right like how am I so it feels really lonely like you just try to do it on your own I wrote down as you were talking because it really resonated it just it really stood out you you said I I know I'm going down and yet I'm trying to get better and so even as you're describing all of these steps and directing your attention to okay I'm going to do this I'm going to do that this is the complexity of what's happening when you're in this struggle and it is quite lonely. And so there's a lot of negotiating that's happening for you that maybe others aren't aware of. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like as I was thinking about all of this, as you said, it's really complex. Like the last two years before I go to treatment, it was my worst years. I was going down so fast. But those were also the two years that I was thinking that I need to get better and I need to get help. At the same time, I'm just almost going to die. I'm just getting worse and worse. And I know I was going down really fast, but also um, trying, um, just trying. It's like a constant battle within yourself. You're you're always on guard with yourself. You're always fighting the positive with the negative. I'm curious, what is it that service providers need to know? Like, is there something they need to know? Because you talk about, you know, the desire to want something and to help yourself is really high. You want to help yourself. You're searching for ways to help. And what I'm also hearing is it's not always easy to talk to service providers. It's not always easy to to share transparently and openly. You know, it's getting a lot better, I would say. You know, I really appreciate that there is just a lot of work being done in the way of harm reduction and dealing with stigma. And that's really big, to be honest. One of the things that in my mind got me to think about treatment was those ads, those government ads about stigma. That really made an effect. Uh, like, let's end this like, stigma. This is just a medical condition. I'm actually getting goosebumps as I talk about it, because that was the first time I'm like, you know what, this is a medical condition. I am sick. I, I need some help. It's really hard for people to understand, and you don't feel that connection, so then you don't want to open up. You know, having people with lived experience, uh, I just look back at all the impact they had on me and all the value they did. Really, the people with lived experience got me to say, just saying that we do understand, we know what you go through. This is normal, you know, your whole body and mind asks you to go and get this stuff. And all through these uh, years, that kind of lived experience next to the professional help provided the help and support for me to ask for that help, to be open to like in the treatment center. She would talk to me and maybe you should go to the doctor and bump up your methadone, for example, like some solutions like that. Maybe you're not talking about this, right? Maybe, maybe the suboxone doesn't work. The tolerance is too high. Maybe... They didn't really hear your whole story. Throughout addiction, it's almost like y- your brain is foggy. You all, It's almost like you need a brain outside of your body to kind of direct you to what you don't know you need. So you need that extra help outside of your body, that brain outside of your body to be like, okay, this is what you need to do. 
this is not working. So we need to try this. It's so beneficial to have somebody by your side. When Zoe came out of detox, she had this whole life in pieces that she had to slowly put back together. Did you have a mess to clean up as well? Um, yes, too big of a mess that I'm still cleaning <laughs> up, to be honest. You know, um, I just had my last uh, check-in with my probation officer just this Tuesday. 27 months, uh, I had to deal with like that kind of mess. That's just one example, right? Um, going through the courts and the correction system and all that. A couple of times, you know, I relapsed after um, once, eight months after my treatment, I relapsed. I, I was worse than when I got into treatment. One thing that really helped was just taking a step back and just slow down, right? As Daniel said, there's everything, there's all these messes, but I can just fix them all like as soon as I'm, oh, you know, clean. Yeah. Just getting clean and staying like that, it's enough work. I always say recovery for me became a full-time job. I got back to work. I actually relapsed at work the day I went back to work, but I just couldn't take the pressure. So just slowing down like everything and it's so hard. Everybody around you wants you to do everything perfectly. And, and now they want you to, you know, you and everyone want to fix everything. You know, this is why you got clean. So I had to really, I had to learn a lot of stuff to really slow it down and really don't be affected by other things or what, how other want my recovery to be. I realized that maybe for a while I should stay with my family. I can't be on my own. Maybe for a while, it's a good thing that I'm not going back to work and I don't have too much money with me. I learned it the hard way. I would go really fast and you know, have this perfectionistic kind of tendency that I have and uh, want to do everything and you know, failing and relapsing. That's eight months I was going to AA. That's what people say you should do. You know, I just dove into the process. I'm like, I'm going to trust the process, what everybody says. I'm just going to do it. Let's see how it goes. I'm like, you know, I can always go back to what I was. I'm just going to give this a try, you know. Let's do this for a couple of months. Let's see how it goes. And it was good. And I was completely sober. And I was on methadone. I will go to AA. I'm not really getting anything out of it in that way. I've got a lot of community and seeing other people and that was really amazing but focusing on that I didn't do other stuff I didn't work on myself and really looking at what I need to do you know what are the things that I need to learn one of the things you mentioned when you first started using substances in the 11th grade when you first moved to Canada was social anxiety I'm amazed at how many people have social anxiety and, and they hide it so well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, that's actually, as you said, a lot of people seem to have it. You know, I never thought I did. Now that I look back, I thought I was perfect, right? But then I would give presentations, I would go to classes in school. I was always like the life of the party and being so, so social, but 
that was when I was medicated, you know, I would do everything in my power to be able to do that because that's what I wanted to be. That's what I wanted to do. But I didn't have the tools to do it the right way. I did it the way I knew best and it worked for me. Now, when I look back, I'm like, wow, I did have a lot of, since I was really young, I did have a lot of anxiety and I had a lot of depression. Then I look back, I'm like, when did I start drinking? And I realized it really started with the first relationship I had with a girl, you know, every time that I had to tell them, like, let's go for a drink because I'm so anxious. I don't want to say the you know, wrong thing. And then I go to a, you know, party with people. English is my second language. Now I'm more insecure. Like that drink just takes, you know, the edge off and I'm feeling more comfortable. So it was really self-medication. And the reason it became daily is because I was in that, I was having that social anxiety daily, you know. I didn't want to stay at home and I, was, I wanted to be social. Then I look back, a lot of my friends, did what I did, you know, they used these substances, we partied together, but only a couple got really addicted. If you look at the data, the percentage of the people who actually get substance use disorder is like 20% or something of the whole people who actually do these substances. So in a way, it's not a choice because those people made the choice. Everybody kind of drinks. So you can't say you, when you had your first drink, you chose to be addicted, right? No, we, I got addicted because of my past, of the things I went through. That's why I chased that, you know, medication. And that's why I needed, and that's what I realized in my recovery. Wow, I'm having a lot of self-worth problems. And that's another thing like this smart recovery kind of looks at. And believes that people with addictive, you know, behaviors usually have some issues with self-worth. And that, you know, I love myself and I felt like I'm confident. But in a way, I had self-worth. That social anxiety came from my self-worth problem. Like when I'm not talking to you, I want to have the perfect hair. Otherwise, I'm not good. I want to be the perfect person. So I had to learn to not be perfect not care what I'm going to say, not think that that, you know, that is my value. That's what takes constant practice, right? It's one thing of you knowing it, the awareness, that was big. I'm like, oh yeah, this is why. But another thing is to practice it. Every time I'm going somewhere and I'm anxious, like for this podcast, you know, I kind of have to do that self-talk, you know. You're enough, you know. You're good as you are. Um, this is who you are and I have to really believe it I was so motivated as I was learning these things because I was empowered I'm like wow like for the first time I'm kind of learning this stuff about myself and there are fixes to it I can actually fix it and the more I did that then I didn't need the drug I've been a smart recovery facilitator for you know, uh, I think almost a year, and you know, I hold groups and talk, and I still get that, you know, those butterflies and get anxious, but constantly in my head, like, you know what, you're just doing that. Or when someone criticizes me, right, that used 
to be huge and still is. Uh, it just gets me to go down to that depression mode, right? So that was another thing, right? Connected to self-worth. And then actual exercises, you know, I had to learn breathing exercises. Like the first time I couldn't even have a deep breath because I never had an actual deep breath before this therapist was like, oh, let's start breathing, right? Do stretches and mindfulness. All those things started to really help. And then I'm like, you know what? I never decided that I'm never going to like have a drink or never would have cannabis. You know, I was like, I'm just today. I'm just getting better today, right? But then I got to a point that I'm like, you know what? You've never been this happy. You've never been this confident, really confident of yourself, just accepting who you are. Just all the things. It's so great. Like, And that was the first time that I'm like, you know what? I believe deep down that I don't need that drug. I just know because it wouldn't make me feel better. And that's when I'm like, you know what? Maybe I can talk about this. Maybe I can share that. I don't feel like I'm just faking it till I make it anymore. I feel like I did it. And that took a while. I was uh, two and a half years sober and almost three years in recovery when I got to that point that, yes, I can be like this guy who facilitates this group and I can be a peer support worker. And I believe the stuff that he talks about. Because it's so hard when you don't have all those tools and you haven't don't have that awareness and you're feeling so bad, you know, getting down, like you're taping down and your methadone, you feel so bad. It's so hard to believe that it, you can be good. So when the peer support worker talks about how he's, you know, he has a daughter and he's going to school and he's, everything is perfect and, you know, um, so colorful and, you know, in my mind, I'm like, bullshit. That's not you just saying that in front of a group, you know, um, you want to go use. Like, that's the mentality I have because I can't feel that yet, right? Mm -hmm. But when I felt that, that was beautiful. I'm like, wow, this guy was right all this time. And it's a good thing that um, I gave it a chance and I just trusted him and this process. When you talk about that process, I want to I want to go back to when you started to talk about slowing down, what slowing down brought for you. And you were earlier talking a little bit about like coming out of uh, whether it's rehab or treatment, you know, there's a there's a lot of excitement from family members. There's a lot of excitement from the people around you who sometimes can feel like cheerleaders, right? Like, oh, look what you've done. And, and you know, and now you've got your whole life in front of you. And I would imagine that there's a lot of pressure with that. And you talked about how when you began to allow yourself to slow down, that your own wisdom started started to develop. You started to work more in pace with what you needed long process how did you help the people around you slow down so you could begin to work with your own pace addiction is a family disease as you said you come out of treatment you know i was there for five weeks and i gained in five weeks i gained like 10 15 pounds i look brand new and everything seems perfect I'm on the pink cloud. I'm, I'm just going to conquer the world. And everybody around you is so happy. And yeah, you know, it's really hard for people 
to see that, that it, this process takes time, you know, because we don't talk about it. We only talk about people going to rehab and getting clean. We don't talk about this as a process and that needs to be done. So, you know, people are okay now. My, like for example, my family, okay, when are you going back to work? And that we should go on this trip and we should plan that. And we actually went on trips, you know, and uh, I started drinking and uh, things getting worse, going to, you know, out to parties, to gatherings, family stuff. Me and everybody around me expect me to now have a hold of it, now be perfect. I had to learn it the hard way. I had to slow down. The professionals kind of talked about it. This program talked about it. Write down your triggers, as simple as that, right? Right. When did this happen? And uh, when I look back, okay, it's all these gatherings that I went. When did I view? When was the trigger? It was when I went back to work and my boss wanted me to finish this project. Or so, how can I, you know, when I was when I saw this friend that he doesn't even use, but when I'm around him for some reason, it just I associate with using or something. Or maybe like going downtown, maybe for a while I just shouldn't go downtown. It just brings up a lot of memories. And that doesn't make sense to a lot of people. They would like be like, like, you know, come to this party or come here. It's my son is being born. You don't want to see him. And I'm like, well, you know what? I'm just working on recovering. Oh, it's been six months. It's taking so long, right? And Another thing that then I had to learn and my family had to learn was boundaries. We never thought of boundaries. You know, culture, you're always there for each other. You're so close, you know. So that's something that me and my family had to learn, both to take things slow and the process takes time. you have a final question honestly i don't have any questions i think it was just all i want to say is i think you're amazing i think your story is amazing and god i would love for you to come back again and mm -hmm. i'm actually going to take into consideration about slowing down so thank you for absolutely everything that you brought to this podcast today i absolutely enjoyed myself and i hope you want to come back so yeah, it was uh, amazing. I would love to come back. This was wonderful. Till next time. Till next time. Sure. Good to see everybody. Yeah. Okay. All right. Take care. Take Bye. care. Bye.